please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello, good morning. It's the 1st of July, 2020. It's 10 o'clock Central European time. It's morning espresso. So before we get stuck in, two things. First of all, if you need a simultaneous translation, then you can click on the button below and we have various options open to you there. Also, if you would like to pose questions, there is a Q&A button uh, that you can select or of course, you're more than welcome to send your questions to nordiafunds at nordia.com and we will try and integrate them or answer them afterwards um, once the session is over. That's it uh, for the introduction. Uh, this week, we are focusing on emerging market debt and specifically talking about ESG. Uh, first of all, for the macro part, I am joined by Vitold Berka. Uh, Vitold, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good morning. So Vitod is our senior macro strategist within the internal emerging market debt team. So um, just to clarify this, um, Nordea has a multi-boutique approach where we have internal boutiques and we have external boutiques. And those internal boutiques, you know, each team is responsible for their own uh, approach. So we don't have a CIO at Nordea Asset Management. Um, each team runs their own macro views and Vitold works within the emerging market debt team. So Vitold, first of all, I was going to ask you about this turbulent period that we've been through and just get your views on what was going on and uh, perhaps more importantly, you know, what investors can expect moving forward. As, as you already pointed out, right, this has been a historic shock, both in economic terms but, and also in financial terms. So it, it definitely deserves a little bit of context also from an emerging market debt perspective. Um, so back in the, in the beginning of the year, we basically called for a, a sharp but also very short uh, recession. Um, and consequently, we actually underweighted risk in our portfolios uh, in mid-February that, uh, of course, contributed nicely to our, our overall performance in the portfolios. We actually uh, turned slightly overweight risk in May um, because we wanted to participate in that uh, rebound rally that basically was caused by, uh, by economies reopening. But um, overall, of course, it was quite an extreme uh, episode also as a, as a market participant, clearly, also because it turned kind of the, 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 the usual recession script upside down. Normally, you see a monetary shock that then translates into a real economic shock. This time it was the other way around that was very demanding actually for investors. But now if we turn to the outlook for, 20, for the rest of 2020, what, what, what to expect here? And, and we basically see three scenarios as you can see on, uh, on slide one yeah. here to the yeah, left. You have a slide, um, don't you? Yeah. Here we go. That's it. So in May, you know, a lot of people started to talk about a V-shaped recovery. That is scenario one where you see a classic forceful rebound in the economy. We do not believe in that scenario going forward. We think it would be a very lackluster recovery due to several factors. Um, first of all, we, the problems 
with the virus have not gone away as the graph to the right shows, right? We're still seeing rising infection rate that will dampen consumer behavior, that will dampen investment demand from the corporate side. Um, we also have a real threat of a, of a policy cliff when a lot of these temporary uh, support measures actually expire here in, Q, uh, in Q3. This is another uncertainty factor. And finally, we, we, we still um, expect to see defaults, bankruptcies rising. Um, this in itself will also hold back corporates from spending too much here. We actually already see chapter 11, chapter seven filings in the US uh, rise. So a bumpy, uh, a bumpy Q3 here uh, is what we expect. If we look further ahead, um, we basically think that the crisis here, the pandemic has reinforced the macro trends we already seen before the pandemic uh, hit. Basically, we are still in a low growth environment. We still think we are in a low inflation environment, importantly, that will keep core interest rates anchored at, at fairly low levels. Um, we also think that the trend of deglobalization will continue and we see increasingly politicized uh, uh, markets here. And, and last but not least, Given that macro mix, we still think that, that we will be very much dependent on policy support. We will see bold policy support, primarily from central banks. Um, you could say policy support and, and easy monetary policies may be the only constant out there right now. Mm -hmm. so, so obviously you're talking about both developed markets, but specifically, where does that leave the emerging markets? Where does that leave emerging market debt in particular? Well, if, we, if you look at the macro mix, right, we have a combination of, of, as I said, low growth, low inflation, but also bold uh, policy support, very easy monetary conditions. This is actually a quite benign environment for uh, EM duration, for EM credit risk as well, given that central banks are very successful in reducing the, 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 the downside risk here to, to especially uh, credit to the credit side of things. It might be less positive for more growth sensitive stuff uh, because we don't expect, as I, as I said, a forceful recovery here. So the outlook for EMFX is a bit more blurred, but uh, it should result in a decent carry environment or you, you'd say, you, you could say the hunt for yield environment will resume. Um, so basically, the pandemic managed to disrupt this carry environment, but it, it didn't succeed in, dis in derailing it completely. We, we expect that to resume, which is a decent environment to harvest the, the yield you get in emerging markets currently. Just as a reminder, the average yield on hard currency debt currently is 5.5%, is which compares to developed market yields that are, that are yeah, basically close to zero many places. Do you, have a, do you have a chart? I think you have a chart on that as well, don't you? Uh, do we have a... On the yield level, unfortunately, yeah, not this no. time around. So, okay, but this is showing the financial debt on the one side. Um, yeah. And then... Yes, exactly. So, so the reason why I included this one is because whenever you are in time of an economic or financial crisis, almost as a knee-jerk reaction, you get the question from clients, from investors: Are we facing an EM debt? crisis hence uh, are we moving yeah. into a phase where we see a broad-based wave of of defaults among among emerging markets yeah uh, and and the reason why we do not expect that why we instead expect a, a continuation of the carry friendly environment that persisted before the crisis actually is uh, is basically twofold first of all as you can see from the chart to the left here mm. the the Yes, emerging market debt had, has risen quite significantly since the last uh, recession, but it is very much a China story. 
Why is that important? Well, because China basically had some levers, some macro levers, which will probably make it able to deal with that kind of debt load. Um, or put it a bit, you know, in a, in a bit of, you know, macro mumbo jumbo here. China has a huge degree of monetary autonomy as compared to other emerging market uh, countries. They managed to close their capital accounts by and large. So that means the risk from Chinese debt are far uh, far uh, far lower than, than, than meets the eye. Secondly, an EM debt crisis needs a trigger. Normally that trigger is, is a tightening of monetary conditions, the dollar appreciates, for example. We don't see any of that, right? As I said earlier, the one constant we're seeing right now is that policy is firmly supporting markets, primarily monetary policy. Uh, that means, you know, for example, that the global financial system is, is flooded with with cheap dollar liquidity. We have a dollar swaps between the US central banks and even emerging market central banks. So we don't see this as a trigger of a broad-based emerging market uh, or, or a broad-based wave of defaults in, uh, within emerging markets. So we don't expect an EM debt crisis here. Um, that said, of course, you will see defaults here and there. And that, of course, requires prudent risk management, both from a macro perspective, but also from a, a bottom-up uh, portfolio perspective. And one of, the reasons, one of the factors that we think contributes significantly to an improved risk reward in the portfolio, because it lowers default risk in the, port uh, in the portfolio, is ESG. But uh, I'm sure Taylor uh, will, will tell you much more about that. I hope so. Great. So um, maybe we we could stop here and, and just go back through the, the key takeaways now. Um, so we have, uh, yeah, on this slide, we have sort of the three, the three main macro takeaways. Uh, first of all, weak recovery, strong central bank support. Um, so a V-shaped recovery seems pretty unlikely at this stage. Um, but all of this basically favors EM sovereign credit. Is that? Yes, yes, yeah, pretty exactly. Much. Secondly, um, COVID uh, reinforces this, this hunt for, for yield. And I've had a couple of clients contact me in the last week, not just on the fixed income side, on the equity side as well, on this hunt for yield. Uh, obviously, it's getting harder and harder. Um, that sort of plays into EM debt. Uh, it's a kind of sweet spot, really. Yeah, very much dependent, of course, on, 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 you know, very loose monetary conditions globally. But we do not see any reasons to believe that that will change anytime uh, soon. So a lackluster growth picture here, but uh, pretty supportive for, for duration as such and also for, the, for, for, you know, making investors basically able to harvest the yield pickup you still get in emerging markets. Yeah. And then the final point, what you were saying, obviously, people tend to think that there's debt crises and uh, you know emerging markets can be more risky, but we don't see it that way. Um, the the Fed is is flooding the market with dollars, um, and uh, the Chinese have got quite a lot of room for maneuver. So uh, we we don't expect any crises uh, on the debt side from the emerging market. Yeah, great. All right, Vitor, thank you very much for your time today. Um, I'm now going to move on to the, the second part, and uh, I'm joined by Teda Rust, who is Nordia's head of uh, emerging market debt. Teda, good morning. Are you there? Yes, good morning. How are Hi. you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Looking Excellent. forward. Good. So, Teda, um, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile just before uh, we came online, and it says you lived in more than 12 countries. 
uh, during <laughs> your, your career. And I, I saw Macau was on there, so well, China, uh, South Africa, Afghanistan, um, and probably the most dangerous place that you've lived where almost everyone carries a gun, uh, the US, when you were working for United Nations <laughs> in New York. <laughs> That's my little joke there. <laughs> um, you are still involved in the UN. You were working uh, for the UN PRA as part of the advisory um, panel there. I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your work on the, on the UN PRI advisory uh, board. Sure. Um, thank you for the, for the kind words and introduction indeed. I mean, I've traveled uh, quite a lot. I mean, some fields uh, quite some distance. I mean, the, the time in Afghanistan that was in 2007, right? I mean, the, the memories are almost fading, even though it was quite a, an eventful time, basically. But um, before that, indeed, I worked, uh, I, I did an internship actually at the United Nations uh, in New York, basically. And, and that I think inspired me at one stage to reach out to, to the UNPRI because I, I mean, the United Nations also with the UNDP organization is of course part of have, having given birth back then to the setup of the UNPRI. And I have to say though that, um, or, let me say first, basically, that the, the draft of the UNPRI committee that I was working on was basically to, to look for ways to integrate um, ESG into fixed income broadly. And uh, we felt we succeeded so much, I mean, together with all the other committee members, that we, that we uh, solved, dissolved the committee. So that is about, okay. uh, yeah, that's about, uh, I think, half a year ago. And, um, and now we moved actually, I mean, we're still involved with the UNPRI, basically other team members now, because we moved the, let's say the broad picture fixed income integration in ESG basically into the various asset classes. So I will right. come to that later also when, when we talk a little bit about Brazil. I mean, one team member, for instance, our head of research in ESG, she's part of the UNPRI working group on sovereign engagement. So basically mm -hmm. some of the work you know, that we wanted to do and that I also felt very passionate about in terms of sharing the, the wealth of knowledge that Nodea has, uh, has acquired basically with other investors that has worked and now it's, it's more in a, in a granular form in the various asset classes. Great. And, and obviously part of what you're doing in there is, is looking at different metrics and different ways of, of measuring uh, performance in with, within portfolios in emerging markets. And I guess what we've seen over time is the industrialized countries have shifted that industrialization into emerging markets. And so, you know, carbon footprint and carbon emissions um, becomes a, a really vital part of, of that process and those metrics that you're looking at. And I, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, comparing the portfolio uh, in terms of, of carbon emissions and talk a bit about that metric. So we have a slide here for the, that you've prepared. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's absolutely true what you're saying that basically that we've seen this um, uh, transition or how, how we actually set our set up global value chains is basically that some of the work that used to be done in developed markets, it's now transferred and outsourced to, to, the, to the emerging markets. And as such, I mean, there is, of course, an, an advantage, let's say, in the carbon intensity of uh, developed market indices. And the second part, though, that I also want to mention is that often we don't um, 
or clients and investors focus more because that's more matured on the equity side of things, right? I mean, also on the carbon footprint on equity. But if you really think of it, you know, the, the capital intensive um, industries like oil and mining, you nowadays find a lot in the, in the emerging market side. So for us, it was extremely important in our uh, ESG integrated strategies to also have a focus on, on carbon intensity, right? And, and what we actually managed in our portfolios is perform very, very well on that metrics. Basically, we're able to lower 70% of the, let's say the index weight versus our, I mean, our portfolio is 70% lower in carbon intensity. And there's a, there's a nice little way of also attaching numbers to it in terms of um, to, to get more of a grip for it. What does that actually mean? So, so if you were to invest 1 million, I mean, that's what you see on the left side on the slide or or yeah. I don't know if it's the right side now, actually, if you're looking at it, but on the <laughs> side, like the text box, basically it's explaining if, you, if you're fortunate enough to bring us 1 million, uh, 1 million euro into, into the, the product, basically, you, you would, and you would want to carbon, pay for the carbon footprint or by carbon offsetting um, ways, you know, you would have to pay 3,728 euro, whereas an index sits at 18,000 euro. And that is actually quite an achievement. I mean, we're almost close to calling us we decarbonizing uh, emerging markets debt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's important. And of course, it would be remiss if I didn't mention that the performance of your emerging market uh, debt or emerging market bond fund has, has been fantastic. But there are lots of other ways of measuring it aside from just the pure returns. And, uh, and, and this is a key thing. Um, Another thing I just wanted to address was because we've we've been talking to to a number of people on the equity side over the previous weeks. What's the difference between you know equity and fixed income when it comes to ESG integration and how you go about that? Yeah, this um, I mean, basically when it comes to fixed income, right? I mean, we're also dealing with sovereign debt. I mean, we're not only dealing with uh, with corporate debt. So mm -hmm. we also have to find ways to, to ESG score and look at the sustainability footprint of sovereigns. I would say that is one of the a key difference in general, if you look uh, on equity versus fixed income, then the other forms are what type of uh, engagement takes place. I mean, we're at Nordea, of course, we always, uh, we strive in engagement. I mean, we, we, we seek, we, we don't, we don't only operate with exclusion, we, we want to operate also with engagement. And, and that is actually quite a new field in fixed income because you don't have, I mean, now when it comes to the, to the corporate side, you don't have the general shareholder meetings like you. So you don't have an established form of how to interact. So in that sense, we, we define this a little bit ourselves. And as I mentioned, especially also on the sovereign side, this is quite, that we're quite at the frontier of things. You just, should we just have a quick look at the, you have a risk model, uh, yes. the ESG risk yep. model slide. Um, yes. Basically, I mean, but this is like, the, let's say this is one part of the whole way of how we deal with ESG and sustainability in our products. And this is actually the, the data-driven part, let's call it this way. And yeah. we, we also, we're more than happy. I mean, we have a, we have a white paper that goes into more depth on the on the model actually that uh, if you reach out to your sales contact can be shared with you but in a simple form what we've done is we took e measures s measures and g measures that you see on the on the left hand side basically and weighted those to to start having a quantitative way of ranking the sovereigns that we're working with and we did this basically on um on elements that we 
saw or that we, we, we researched and found they, they've been established on in academic research, basically. So we didn't go out and did our own back testing. We, we, we built our knowledge on the shoulders of, um, of academia. And then though the weighing and all the, the various data levels that go in are basically proprietary. And this forms the core and the starting point of how we look at the ESG profile of a country. And it will, on the next slide, I will actually show, or we will show the, the way, the, the outcome of the model. So let's uh, flip to the next slide then, because... Uh, sure. Let me have a look at that. Because what you, yeah, what you yeah. see here is actually a, a relative scoring, a relative ranking of all the sovereigns that we invest in, basically. And then, and, and, and this, these, these ratings, I mean, it, you have rating agencies, but they typically won't necessarily cover all of these sovereigns and quasi-sovereigns. So how do you do this? Exactly. So we, yeah. so basically, I mean, the, the, the rating agencies, they are fairly established, let's say on the, on the sovereign side, but on the quasi sovereigns, indeed, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of gaps basically, which, um, and we, we tend to refer to, to our, our model outcome as a scoring exercise. I mean, because uh, we, we, as such, we don't do the rating here. We do a scoring basically. And, and this is done entirely in-house though. I mean, we cross reference of course, also towards external parties, but this is our way of um, of scoring these uh, scoring these um, these sovereigns, mm -hmm. and then then but it goes beyond that, right? I mean, because what we're doing is we then classifying countries as in A category, so that is investable, that are the blue countries, and then B category is um, investable, but with a thorough and documented ESG analysis that identifies a positive trajectory, mm -hmm. and then we have the C countries, which we basically exclude, and. Okay. We, we exclude the C countries on the basis of our thinking behind this is that these countries have, have so much ESG risk or their, their level of ESG risk, right? The stock that they're exposed to is so high that over, let's say three to five year time horizon, so as a long-term investor, you're not, in our mind, you're not being compensated for taking these ESG risks. So it's, it's a, it's a for value. I mean, it's a value generating exercise, right? I mean, a, yeah. a long-term alpha generating exercise. And we also, on the B category, we also question, I mean, this is also, these are also countries that in a relative sense have a, a very high ESG stock, but here we invest in the countries where we see a positive trend, right? I mean, the trajectory yeah. basically that we identify is that, that the, the sovereign is working to improve the management of the ESG risks. And as okay. such, you can argue that, we, that we're actually looking because that's what investing is about. We're looking for trajectories, right? And here in this case, we're looking for positive ESG trajectories. So what about the, the quasi-sovereign or the corporate uh, that you know how do you do, how do you go about that yeah, yeah. um Actually, for, for the quasi-sovereigns, what we've done in our portfolios in the, in the you know, ESG, fully ESG integrated products and our flagship products, we actually, we actually sold those, right? I mean, so, so we basically, mm -hmm. we, we're not holding any of these, um, these uh, quasi-sovereigns at the moment because what, what our philosophy and style is in the corporate side is that we seek for sustainable development goals. 
alignment because we believe alignment towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals is, is basically a way and a form of, of showing and identifying companies that have a very resilient business model that proves mm -hmm. itself longer term and to the future. So that's where we put our emphasis on. And we, we haven't found too many in the quasi-sovereign universe that are actually in this category. So what, what you find is a lot of companies and, and state-owned entities, I mean, maybe to define quasi-sovereigns for, for the people who don't know what quasi-sovereigns are, they are 100% state-owned entities. And you, you find companies such as, um, such as Pemex or ESCOM from South Africa in, these, in, in the index basically included. And those generally speaking, are very carbon intensive and often in the mining sector. And, and, and those were actually yeah, sold. And then we're seeking SDG aligned corporates with resilient business models, which can be, for instance, companies in, in the solar industry, but also in banking and also in utilities, right? And as such, you see a structural shift in our portfolio away from, you know, industries and companies that have very challenged transition profiles to actually companies and industries that are already quite advanced when it comes to the transition that we all have to go through globally. So just before we, we wrap up, we wanted to, to bring a case and just show uh, an example of, of how we go about engagement. Um, and, and we have a slide on this. It, this created a bit of a media storm at the time, didn't it? Uh, maybe yeah, you can talk yeah. us through this. No, absolutely, it did. I mean, actually, quite recently, some uh, one one of our sales contacts uh, had told me that that uh, this was maybe a bit controversial, even. And it's quite fascinating, actually, when how I think it moved from maybe being controversial, like let's say about a a year ago or when we started, to actually now becoming more and more mainstream, right? I mean, and this is actually I'm talking here about Brazil. What we did is. Um, we we've always i mean we always do an analysis as i said on on any sovereign that we invest in in terms of esg factors right and we identified that you know the, the treatment of the environment and in specific the amazon region in brazil may become a challenge towards structural growth towards brazil because in I mean, in the short run, you can, of course, argue that, let's say, exploiting a resource like a forest is something that enhances economic growth. But in this case, what happened, and that's the first, uh, first bullet point also you see on, on the timeline, basically, is that France threatened the Mercosur deal, so the trade deal between, between Europe and Latin America, and related to what's happening in the Amazon region basically. And at that moment, you know, we, we realized, okay, there's an economic trigger challenge for Brazil actually related to, to the element of deforestation. And that also meant that we suspended purchases of, um, of, the, of the government bonds of Brazil. And indeed, it created a media, or we, we, we got the media attention we actually hoped for, because this is one of the largest economies in the world, and we wanted to find a way to engage with the sovereign. And mm -hmm. We can't, we, we, were, we knew this would not going to be successful if we will be all quiet about it, right? I mean, so, and it did actually result in that, uh, you know, Brazil reached out to us. I mean, the, um, actually the ministries in Brazil, first through the embassy, I mean, they, they reached out to us and then we had a couple of calls also with officials in Brazil, basically. Right. And um, a dialogue took place, but 
And then we monitored the case and we, we made clear, you know, what our, what our concerns are and, and how we're looking at the case. And we unfortunately did not see, I mean, to, to, to spoil the story, we did not see any developments so far to lift this, um, this uh, suspension of purchases. So, so we, couldn't, we couldn't see that basically um, that progress has been made. But what happened then is, is also gets more, because could it also be, is it realistic to assume basically that we as Nordea Emerging Markets Dev Team can influence Brazil towards um, stopping forest fires? And I think, uh, no, that's also not our premise. And I mean, it's not realistic to assume that, but we still want to be good stewards of capital that has been entrusted with us and focus on the long term. Because then what happened, if you, if, if you read a bit about Brazil, is actually um, their environment minister was on tape arguing that during the corona crisis, basically they could use this media attention focusing on something else to actually change legislation towards the Amazon. And this is exactly one of the reasons that we felt it was important to put a spotlight onto the situation basically in Brazil. So, so that you know, media and others know that attention is given there. And also since then, basically, you know, it continued and actually our form of, um, you know, of, of force first engagement led now to a wider audience. I mean, that's also why I feel it's not so controversial anymore. Maybe we were just one of the first, but mm. now you have about 29 investors actually in right now in the news engaging with Brazil and also the central bank reaching out, commenting on it. It's reported, reported in the, the largest um, newspapers locally on Brazil. And there's a, there's a lot of broader felt momentum. So in, in my mind, it's a little bit like generally what you do in investing. You need to have maybe a, a contrarian view in the beginning. You need to maybe be bold enough to take a step at that moment. And then, you know, the markets often tend to, yeah, sometimes tend to follow in your direction, sometimes not. And this is the same case here, right? I mean, that we just had a, an earlier step into actually something that is developing basically. Well, it's, it's good to see that we're at the forefront of, uh, of these developments. And of course, the whole point is, is engagement and, and trying to improve things and make things better. And, and obviously, that's a, a brilliant example of, of how we, we can affect change, basically. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Data. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, so I just wanted to quickly go through um, some of the key takeaways um, uh, at the end of this session. So um, again, just, just to reiterate, strong emphasis on improving the ESG uh, valuations and, and exploiting these sustainability trends. Um, we have this consistent disciplined ESG integrated process. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the results have been very, very promising. So congratulations to you and, and the rest of the team uh, on that. Uh, that's great to see. So we, we have a very strong offering on the emerging market equity side, and now we have a strong offering uh, on the emerging market debt side as well. So that's that's really great to see that uh, that that's working. Um, the, part of that, of course, is is your team, but also the responsible investment team who are who are helping and supporting you. You know, we have a we have a, a big team up in the Nordics uh, who are involved in this uh, this portfolio. Any last closing points uh, you want to mention before we wrap up? I, I think you captured it very well. Thank you Excellent. for having us. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Vitot, as well. Uh, next week on Wednesday, we will be talking about U.S. investment grade. Uh, we're seeing a lot of client demand on, on the U.S. corporate side. We'll also be talking about U.S. high yield, um, focusing a bit more on fallen angels, which is a big topic right now. And that will be with the portfolio managers um, of our funds from Mackay Shields, who are one of our external um, advisors. So that's uh, next Wednesday, same time. Uh, in the meantime, please do go and visit uh, our microsite, Stay, Stay Alert microsite. It's on nordia.lu. Um, and again, if you do have any questions, then please do send them to us at nordiafunds at nordia.com. Um, that's it, I think, for this week. I will see you on the 8th. Thank you.